Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches that when we trust Christ as our Savior, we're adopted into the royal family of God. And just like any errant child, we can disobey God and we're out of fellowship. And that means that there has to be a way to get back into fellowship. We can... We're told that we are to abide in Christ. When we sin, we're no longer abiding in Christ, so there has to be a way of recovery. When we are first saved, we're initially walking in the light, but when we sin, we walk in darkness. There has to be a way of recovery. The way of recovery is 1 John 1, 9, which is to simply admit or acknowledge your sins, and, and you will be forgiven of the sins that you commit and cleansed from all unrighteousness all unrighteousness. And so we always have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that uh, we're in fellowship, ready to focus, study on the Word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have Your Word to go to because it is our source of truth. It's our source of comfort. It's our source of guidance and direction. The psalmist said that it's in Your light that we see light. It's only in the light of Your Word that we truly understand reality as it is and understand You as You are. And You have created all things, and therefore You are the one who determines the nature of all reality. Father, we understand that history is the outworking of your plan from eternity past. And as we go through history, we need to orient to your plan above all things, recognizing that history is moving in a specific direction. You have declared the end from the beginning. And as you work out your plan, you have done so through these various covenants. First, the covenants that you gave to all mankind, and now the covenants that you have given to Israel. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand our relation to the New Covenant, understand the significance of the New Covenant, that it may uh, help us, strengthen us in our own understanding of our priesthood, the relationship of our priesthood to the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that in light of its future manifestation in the Millennial Kingdom. We pray that we would be able to concentrate and focus tonight as we study your Word We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are now in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, verse 31. Although we will probably start earlier in the chapter in order to pick up context. In order to pick up some context. Now, just so we don't forget where we are in our study on the New Covenant, we are studying these passages in the Old Testament Because in the middle of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews is making a case for the unique present ministry of Jesus Christ as a high priest, as a unique high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that that priestly ministry that he has is not according to the order of Aaron, it's not according to the Mosaic Covenant, but it's going to be related to a different covenant. And this is 
called the New Covenant. There's only one place actually in all of the Scripture, all of the Old Testament, that specifies this last everlasting covenant as a new covenant, and that is Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 down through 34. And this passage in the book of Jeremiah is the core passage for understanding the new covenant. And as I've, we've done in the past, as I've gone through this, there have been some different views on the relationship of the church to the new covenant. And as I, and we're going to go back over this again in detail when we get back into Hebrews 8. But the point is, in Hebrews 8, that with a covenant change, there's a change of priesthood. Now, Jesus Christ functions in three roles in history, prophet, priest, and king. And these are, uh, even though he is all at the same time, that he, when he was on the earth, he functioned more in the prophetic role. Now he is functioning more in his priestly role. And when he returns at the second coming, it will be predominantly his kingship role, but not to the complete exclusion of the others. There, it is just during that period, it will be more so his kingly role as the greater son of David, uh, ruling from uh, Jerusalem, but he will also be functioning in a in a high priestly way. So it's not that it's one or the other or the other, but that at different periods, one is more dominant than the other two. And in his priestly ministry, the authorization or the covenant basis for that is the new covenant. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we enter into Christ, we have a position in Christ, and our priestly ministry is, is based on his high priestly ministry. So when we look at the new covenant and we see that there are two parties, party the first part, party the second part, Israel is party the second part, Jesus Christ is party the first part, and it is through him that we enter into uh, the benefits of the new covenant. That becomes the legal structure because from Genesis 12 on, everything in human history is ultimately based on one of those uh, covenants to Israel. The, we have the Abrahamic covenant and then the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, those three covenants. The Mosaic covenant was temporary and that's the whole point that the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing even though he quotes this whole passage the only thing he really develops is the idea that because it's called a new covenant, that rendered the Mosaic covenant temporary, made it a temporary covenant, always was intended to be temporary. It could not provide that which the new covenant provides. The old covenant provided a mandate to live a certain way, but didn't provide the internal change and transformation that must be there in order to fulfill all the mandates of the covenant. And that's what the new covenant does. And even though there are similarities to the spiritual life of the believer in the church age today, what I started to develop last week, what I'm still working through because it has, you get into these passages, you realize there's a dozen tentacles that go out in a dozen different directions and a dozen different are more passages in, in the Bible. You have to work through all of these. And some of the terminology that's used in a lot of the literature uh, where theologians have th thought through and talked about the New Covenant is fuzzy. And I talked about that last week, that you have people talk about the fact that this New Covenant provides for the regeneration of Israel. And it's just left there. And for those of you who've been coming on on Monday night or listening to the History of Doctrine course, you realize that this is typical in the history of Christianity, that you have people who use uh, vague or uh, ill-defined terms until somebody comes along and starts asking some hard questions or takes a heretical position, and then you say, well, I know that's not right, but I'm not sure what is right. And so it's in that context that that doctrine is clarified and becomes a little more precise. 
And what I've had problems with and, and has come to you know, my attention as I've studied this time is in what sense are we talking about regeneration of the nation when you read dispensational theologians and they say that the new covenant provides for the regeneration of Israel. Well, what are we talking about? How is a nation regenerate? A nation is composed of uh, hundreds of thousands of individuals. And when you talk about the regeneration of the nation, does that mean you're talking about the regeneration of the, you know, five or ten million people who make up the nation? Well, if you're talking about their individual regeneration, does that mean that they weren't regenerate or saved prior to that event? And so you see what the problem is, is that if the new covenant provides for the regeneration of the nation, and the new covenant is enacted when Jesus has already returned and uh, gained victory over the Antichrist and the false prophet at the end of the tribulation period, if that's when the nation is regenerated in that event, when exactly does that occur? And does that mean that none of these Jews were saved before that? And the problem with that is, well, no. It's clear that, th that these Jews had to have been saved and that the Jews who escape in response to the warning in Matthew 24, when Jesus said, those who see these signs, meaning the abomination of des desolation, when you see this happen, instantly flee. Those who follow that advice escape to uh, the area down around modern, uh, the area that's designated now as Petra, also called Basra. In the, in the Old Testament, this area in Jordan that is, on the, that is south, southeast of the Dead Sea. And to, to, to flee there, they had to have listened to Jesus. To listen to Jesus means that these Jews would have already accepted him as their Messiah. They would be regenerate under the terms of regeneration in the tribulation period. And what we see is that regeneration is technically a very restricted concept of moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. In the Old Testament, there were certain things that accompanied that. Not a whole lot, but there were certain things that accompanied that in terms of you were provisionally justified you were given a provisional imputation of righteousness. This is why Old Testament saints went to paradise, which was part of, of Hades, and they didn't go directly to heaven until after uh, redemption, propitiation was accomplished on the cross. Once that was accomplished, then Jesus had his victorious proclamation in Hades, uh, announcing to the Old Testament saints that their salvation now was complete, and they were taken to heaven. So that Abraham in Genesis 15, 6 is declared righteous, but it's a provisional righteousness because Jesus hasn't come yet, sins haven't been paid for yet, and you don't, and Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. So you can't have resurrected saints going to have any of that taking place until uh, Jesus Christ pays for the, pays for sin actually and fully on, on the cross because this, the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament economy just could not uh, accomplish that. So you have a different, you have different things accompanying regeneration in the Old Testament. It's clear that Old Testament saints could be regenerate. See, the reason I say that is because part of the stuff that comes out of this new uh, progressive dispensationalism, which is neither progressive nor dispensational in my opinion, is the idea that regeneration was unique to the church age and you don't ha really have regeneration in the Old Testament. So that's just a little aberration they have. But the point is, the way you know that they had regeneration under the Old Testament economy, under, under the period, the time frame of Israel is how? Just think of it. Just give you a chance to unplug from the rest of the day and get your mind in gear, not just sit there passively listening, but just kind of think through. If somebody were to ask you that question, what, what would you go to? What passage in Scripture that you would go to that comes before the cross that is talking about regeneration? Oh, I see these looks like eyebrows knit together. Okay, let me, let me give you a big hint. What passage of Scripture would you go to where a conversation takes place before the cross 
where the subject matter is being born again. John 3. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he says, you know, you, don't you know that you can't see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again? Obviously, if Nicodemus trusted Christ at that point, he's an Old Testament saint. It's in the age of Israel. It's before the cross, and he's being regenerated. So obviously, he should have understood that. So that tells us that that Old Testament saints were regenerate. Being born again was operative prior to the cross. It's not a post-cross aspect of salvation. But after Pentecost, regeneration has, or getting when you get saved, you get other things that Old Testament saints didn't get. You get baptized by the Spirit. You get the filling of the Spirit. You get the indwelling of the Spirit. You get many other things as well that Old Testament saints didn't get. But in relationship to the Spirit, you get those things. You also have a positional cleansing that is distinct from the cleansing that Old Testament believers had because Christ had not yet paid for, for, for the price of sin on the cross. And so their cleansing was provisional. When you read about cleansing in the Old Testament, all you see is ritual cleansing. But now what we're going to see is there's a new aspects to cleansing that are going to be added in the New Covenant. And just because you have similar terms related to the Spirit, the internal work of the Spirit, just because you have similar terms related to cleansing, and that are talked about in these New Covenant passages, does it mean that the regeneration dynamic of the church age is the same as the regeneration dynamic in terms of associated and complementary uh, things that are done in your spiritual li- in the spiritual life of millennial believers, that, that these are the same. But by calling it regeneration, it creates a, a lack of clarity a certain fuzziness because what's being included in regeneration are these aspects of the millennial believer's spiritual life that aren't the same, although there are similarities in the church age. Now, that's just kind of an introduction. It's the kind of thing I'm trying to sort of work my way through. And And what happens is that you'll start heading down what looks like a very promising line of thought, only to discover after about eight or ten hours of thinking that all of a sudden um, you're you're down a blind alley, and you made a couple of false assumptions, and you've run into three or four verses that don't quite fit that scenario. So you have to back up and go in a different direction. So, but it's kind. Of, this is the fun part of being a pastor, is because you get to. You get to do this and try to uh, tear some scripture apart, break it all down, and put some things together that others have not quite done in the same way. So that's why we're uh, laboring a little bit through some of these verses related to the old covenant and, or excuse me, the new covenant and Israel uh, in the in the Old Testament. So we looked at passages in Hosea, then we looked at passages in Isaiah. We're going through these chronologically as they appeared in the progress of Revelation so that now we're in our Jeremiah passage. And let me just read through the passage so we know what's going on. Behold, Jeremiah says, the days are coming. Now, this is an interesting phrase that occurs at least five times in Jeremiah. So it's focusing on the future. It's not something happening now, but it's in the future. Days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. 
For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, when we look at the fact that the aspects of the new covenants mentioned five times in the, in the I believe it's five times in the New Testament, you have the Luke passage where Jesus institutes the, uh, uh, the Lord's table. This blood is a new covenant. This, this cup is a new covenant of my blood. You have its repetition in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You have, I guess there's, uh, you have a passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul says we're ministers of the new covenant. You have uh, Jer- uh, uh, Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. These are the places that, that uh, the New Covenant is mentioned in the New Testament. But the passage where Paul says we're ministers of the New Covenant is what's confused people thinking that somehow there is a New Covenant relation with the church. But he doesn't say that. He says he's a minister. He is a servant of the New Covenant. And the New Covenant applies to church-age believers even though the covenant itself is only with Israel. And so as the church is related to the Lord Jesus Christ through his priesthood, we have a ministry that is based on the new covenant, even though we're not a direct covenant partner. Now, I'll probably say that a dozen more times before it really clicks in some of your minds, but uh, let's just look at Jeremiah 31. We have to understand some things related to background and context. Background and context. So, uh, first point in terms of background is Jeremiah is writing this shortly after 597 B.C. There's debate among uh, scholars as to exactly when he wrote this because it's not clear. There's You don't turn to uh, the passage here, and even though in if you've got a Schofield Reference Bible, there's probably a date near the top of the middle column that's based on Usher's chronology, but that's not in the original text. That's Usher's learned opinion. And by the way, Bishop Usher was an extremely learned man. People tend, today tend to make fun of him because um, he says that creation occurred in 4004 B.C. In fact, he actually had a date for it based on the Jewish calendar. And people tend to make fun of him, but he probably knew more about Greek and Hebrew than almost any pastor or theologian today that I know about and he had mastered numerous chronological uh, schemes and calendars of the ancient world and was able to put together a vast amount of information. He was a, a, a Anglican bishop in Ireland, and he was quite brilliant and quite capable, and it's only because, uh, based on the presupposition of evolution in our culture, that the earth is really, and the universe is billions of years old, that people want to make fun of Usher. But Usher wasn't a fool, and he wasn't just uh, somebody who uh, was assuming a lot of things about history that weren't in evidence. He knew a tremendous amount, and I have his book on um, chronology, and it is about an inch and a half thick, and it's one of these large books that's larger than, it's probably about 10 by 14 in size, and it's small print. So... He is, um, he's, he's quite a scholar. I'm not sure that I agree with everything because we've discovered a lot of things since then, but I think he's, he's generally uh, on target. He's probably within at least six or 700 years, if not, if not closer. But no one really knows. We do know that in 605, Nebuchadnezzar invaded uh, Judah and took the first group of captives back to Babylon. That group of captives included uh, Daniel and his uh, three friends, Hananiah, uh, Azariah, and Mishael. That every, Everybody wants to call them by their pagan names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but their names that their uh, believer parents gave them were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And these were... Uh, among many numerous young men and women who were hauled off in captivity back to Babylon to be retrained and, and brainwashed to be administrators, administrators in the uh, Babylonian Empire. And then there was another, a second invasion by, by uh, Nebuchadnezzar in 597 B.C. because Jehoiakim had not been a uh, an obedient puppet. And so Jehoiakim is hauled back to uh, Babylon as a captive after three months of his 
rain and along with uh, many thousands of other Jewish captives in the second deportation. And so Jeremiah is writing this section of Jeremiah uh, to those captives. And part of this is a, is a re- reminder to Israel that even though they are in captivity, even though they are virtual slaves, even though they have lost everything that they have, even though uh, all of their hard work, all of their life savings, everything disappeared, all of their hopes, all of their dreams, all of their plans evaporated due to the shifting winds of, of politics. It could happen this next year. But I won't get distracted. The reality is God is in control. And that's what Jeremiah is saying. God is in control. God has a plan. And there is hope for the future. Because even though the nation Israel turned their back on God and God carried out His promises to discipline them and to remove them from the land, and even though they have lost almost all of their worldly possessions and all their hopes and dreams, God's plans are not lost. And God has a plan and a future uh, for them. And we need to understand that with, because, and go back to the first part of Jeremiah 31, because this focuses us on the future and the hope that God has for Israel and the plan that they have, because they're out there in the captivity, the, the, these initial sort of pre-captive uh, captives, because the captivity doesn't technically begin until 586 when the temple is destroyed. But they're out there as captives wondering, what's happened? Why has God forgotten about me? I've been praying to God. Many of these were believers like Daniel and his friends. And they have to suffer just as much as all of the pagans. Some of you may be thinking that as we face uh, the coming uh, presidential election, that if uh, certain people get elected into office, that we're going to see our taxes go up. And when taxes go up, you always lose freedom. Always. Freedom is related to how much money you have at your disposal. The Founding Fathers understood that, and that's why there was a uh, uh, a great deal made about taxation without representation. It's not that the government doesn't have the right to tax. It's that when it taxes too much, it becomes tyrannical, and we lose liberty, and we lose freedom. Speaking of liberty... We are about to embark on a study of liberty from, uh, uh, as of, I think, Saturday is the anniversary of Santa Ana's arrival in San Antonio. And it's somewhat surprised when the Texans found out that uh, Santa Ana had crossed the Rio Grande and he was moving very rapidly. They didn't expect him in the dead of winter, but he wasn't going to, uh, uh, he didn't feel like he had a need to wait. And so he got, got to San Antonio with many more troops. Numbers vary, four or 5,000 Mexicans, and uh, much quicker than they thought. And the 150 that were there when he arrived were uh, going to have their numbers augmented by approximately number th- another 32. And so Santa Ana's arrival was on uh, February the 23rd in San Antonio. So I thought that in light of the need to rehearse what liberty is all about and how it is purchased, that we might just sort of walk our way through the Texas uh, Revolution during the next three or four months between now and April the 22nd. 22nd? 21st. See, I'm not a numbers guy. I know it was the 21st. Just testing you, Tom. Which is San Jacinto Day. We used to get that as a holiday back when people cared about history and freedom and Texas and things like that. So we'll go through that. But see, what happens is when a nation goes under divine discipline, that the, the the righteous, the believers, suffer just as much as the as the unrighteous because of uh, cursing by association. But we have the resources to handle it, and we can't let ourselves become distracted as we watch the political fervor. 
And it's easy for some of us to become distracted. It's easier for some than others. But the reality is that if things do not go well, and things haven't gone well, face it, for a number of decades, it just continues to decline. Whichever party's in control, we tend to continuously see our freedoms and our liberties erode because nobody cares about the Constitution anymore. They just care about uh, personal power, and people are willing to give power to politicians because they are willing to give up their freedom for the illusion of security and affluence. And this is, was predicted by Francis Schaeffer back in the 70s. He's not the only one, by the way. There were many others who did. But that Americans, because they have no core values based on absolutes anymore, uh, do not know uh, how to sacrifice. They don't know how to live in the present. We have borrowed and borrowed and borrowed against the future, both individually and nationally. And sooner or later, the bill comes due. And this, is, this can be, be a very tragic and difficult time. It probably will not be as difficult as it was for the Jews when the Bab- Babylonians came through, when the Chaldeans came through under Nebuchadnezzar and, and deported them and they lost everything. We may lose a few things. We may, not, we may have to put some plans on hold. Uh, we may not have as much disposable income left because the federal government is going to take more and more of it. But the reality is that God is in control and God's working out his plan and purposes. And if we're oriented to that plan, we can have joy and happiness and stability because we know that God is taking us through these things and they're great opportunities for us to trust the Lord and to grow and to be a witness to other people. And so that's the same kind of thing that was going on in Jeremiah's time, is he wants to encourage the believers who have taken, been taken out in slavery, in captivity. They're living outside of the land. They're thinking that God has forgotten them. God has rejected them and that there is going to be no hope or future for Israel or for themselves. And so God is going to remind them through Jeremiah that he is still their God, even in Babylon. He is still providing uh, happiness and stability for them, even though they are in slavery and even though they have lost everything. And the first verse of chapter 31, Jeremiah says, At the same time says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families in Israel, and they shall be my people. And he is talking about the future restoration of Israel and the future... A deliverance of the nation. This fits within a pass, a, a section that focuses on the future restoration of Israel. There will be uh, two massive regatherings of Israel in history in the future from the time of the prophets. Hold your place here and turn with me for just a minute to Isaiah chapter 11. to remind you of an important passage. Isaiah chapter 11 is also talking about this future return of a of, of, of people Israel, of a regenerate people to the land. And in Isaiah 11, 11 we read, it shall come to pass in that day. What's that day? Well, according to the context, it's that day when uh, the root of Jesse, that is, Jesse was the father of David, that is when the seed of David, the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, takes the throne and establishes uh, his kingdom in Israel. Verse 10 says, In that day... There shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So this is puts our focus on the return of Christ, the time when he establishes the Davidic kingdom, millennial kingdom, uh, messianic kingdom. All of these terms can be used. Verse 11 says, It shall come to pass in that day, so we know from the context that that day refers to the the, the time of that recovery, that restoration of the nation 
as a regenerate, as a saved people, because all will be saved if they go into the millennial kingdom. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. That's the phrase you need to underline. That's the phrase you need to highlight. The Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush. Cush is Libya. Pathros is located, um, I'm not sure where Pathros is. It's, I think it's in uh, um, modern Turkey area. Uh, Elam, which is down in the uh, Persian Gulf area, and Shinar, which is Babylon. And from Hamath and the islands of the sea. Hamath and the islands of the seas refers to all those islands out in the Mediterranean and the Aegean, uh, which is basically a term for all the land that's, that's west, which would include uh, Europe. Now, he's going to recover the remnant a second time. So the question has to be, when did he recover Jews from all of these places the first time? Well, you only have a couple of options. The option most people want to go to is uh, 536, when Cyrus signed a decree that uh, uh, Zerubbabel could take a group of Jews from Babylon back to the land and begin, begin to reestablish themselves in their own land. The problem is, in 536, you only had about four or 5,000 Jews return with Zerubbabel, and they only came back from Babylon. Now, what had happened in 722 was that the ten northern tribes, most of them were deported by the Assyrians and scattered from, from Turkey through all of the modern... Uh, uh, Stan countries, uh, uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, all the way across those northern uh, countries that are part of the old uh, Soviet bloc, to Persia, to India, and then they migrated even further. So you had this massive deportation of, of northern kingdom Jews, and then at the time of the Babylonian invasion... You had a number of Jews leave and go to uh, go down to Egypt, and you had some that went up into the area around Turkey. There were a number of of uh, cities in in ancient ancient uh, Turkey, which was uh, later became part of the Greek Empire, where they had established a a tra- as tra- established themselves as traders, as merchants in that part of the world. And so the Jews, by the end of the 6th century, by around 530-520, were scattered all over the ancient world, North Africa, Europe, uh, the mid, all over the Middle East, and into the Far East. But in 536, they only a small group returned from one area. There were other returns that took place in the 400s with Ezra and Nehemiah, but they only came from... Babylon. Now, there might have been a few individuals who decided to go back from Egypt or some other places, but there wasn't a a large movement, a large return. There might have been the odd person here or there, uh, like even the Apostle Paul had his parents send him down to Jerusalem so he could be trained as a rabbi, as as a Pharisee. So there were the odd individuals that went back for various reasons, but there were no other groups that returned. So if God is going to bring a return at the end of the tribulation, that's the second return from all these places, from all around the world, when do we see in history a return of Jews to the land from the four corners of the earth, from all over the earth? Well, the only time we see that in the last 2,000 years has been what's happened in the last 150 years, 150, 160 years, as you see the uh, rise of Jewish Zionism. Now, that may say seem redundant to some of you, but there are some Jews that aren't Zionists. They don't believe there ought to be uh, any Jews in the land until the Messiah returns. That was the dominant view as we've studied before, that was the dominant view from the 
deep uh, from the destruction of the temple in 70 in AD 70 up to the early 1800s and in 1839 1840 uh, Rabbi Judah ben Alkali publishes a tract which begins to influence people that yes you can go back to the land before the Messiah comes more and more begin to think that you can't they, the Jews can return to the land without benefit of the return of the Messiah and this culminated in the first Zionist council uh, that Theodore Herzl called in the 1890s. And then you had, through the 1890s and on up to 1948, you had various aliyahs. Aliyah from the Hebrew word Allah, meaning to go up. And so you had these returns as people would go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's always thought of as up, and everywhere, whenever you leave Jerusalem and go somewhere, you're always going down. Uh, we think of up as north and down as south, but for the Jews, up is Israel and the rest of the world is down. And so they're always going up to Israel, up to Jerusalem, and so that's an aliyah. And so you had every three or four years, you had another aliyah. And you had just massive numbers, tens of thousands of Jews every three or four years returning to Israel. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And now you have had in the 20th century just a massive number of Jews returned to the land. So that's the only other time in history that you have a return of Jews to the land. But somebody might say, well, they're not saved. Well, it doesn't say that they were saved the first time. In fact, we know that they're, they are primarily not a regenerate nation for the first return because in order for the tribulation to begin the Antichrist has to sign a treaty with Israel. This is in Daniel chapter 9, verses uh, uh, 24 and following. When the Antichrist signs that treaty with Israel, that begins the 70th week of Daniel. And that starts the countdown for the, that last seven-year period, which is the period of the tribulation. And it doesn't start with the rapture. It starts with the signing of that of that treaty between the Antichrist and Israel. What does that tell you? That tells you that there has to be a nation, a corporate entity with a governing body that is authorized to sign this covenant with the Antichrist. Now, because they're signing a covenant with the Antichrist, you know that they're, they're apostate. Because they're building a temple on the Temple Mount... And you know they have to build a temple in the Temple Mount so that it can, uh, you can have the abomination of desolation halfway through and the Antichrist can set up his, his image in the temple to be worshipped. You know that if they're building a temple, then they still haven't accepted Jesus as Messiah, which means that this nation that will be in existence in the tribulation period is an apostate nation. And so there has to be a return. They have to return in apostasy. And in apostasy, they're going to build the um, third temple, which is an apostate temple. That's all just deduction from the text. So if the second return is the return of a regenerate people to the land, you know, and God is bringing them back, and that's called the second one, then the only other candidate for the first one is this one. In other words, there's only two worldwide returns. And, and so this is what we're looking at today. Now the focus in Jeremiah 31 is on this second return. God says, at the same time, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Looking forward to the future. Thus says the Lord in verse 2, the people who survived the sword, that's the tribulation. They survived the sword, found grace where? In the wilderness. What did Jesus say? When you see these things happening, flee into the mountains, flee into the hills, go down into the wilderness. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when I went to give him rest. This is a, a prophecy of, of the Messiah coming to deliver them at the end of the tribulation. Jeremiah says, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness... I have drawn you again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines. You shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. 
The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food, for there shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise, and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. This has never happened. This has never been fulfilled. You can't force it into a fulfillment in any of the uh, times with Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, or earlier with Zerubbabel. There's a time in verse 7 that they're going to rejoice, be tremendous celebration, sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations, proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them where? From the ends of the earth. This is talking about that that uh, regathering that takes place in Matthew 13. The parables talks about this. God is going to send out the angels to bring uh, his elect, which in that context talking about the elect of Israel, the saved of Israel. And among them there will come the blind, the lame, the one with child, the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping, with supplications. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel. Ephraim is my first Born. Verse 10, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, declared in the isles afar of off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger uh, than he, that is, stronger than Israel. That would be during the oppression of the tribulation of the Antichrist. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord, for wheat and new wine and oil for the young. It goes on to talk about the tremendous prosperity that will be there and the joy and rejoicing that will take place during that time. And, and verse 14, the last half we read, And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. See, that's, that's never happened. So the, the, the description here in the context of Jeremiah 31 is talking about the return to the land. And then we have a Quotation in verse uh, 15, a statement rather in verse 15 that is quoted later and applied as because there's a point of similarity in Matthew chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. This is the weeping of the mothers of Israel as their sons and daughters are being taken off into captivity. Uh, to Babylon. That's going to be applied to Bethlehem at the, during when uh, Herod has the uh, infant slaughtered because there's one point of similarity and that is mothers weeping for lost children. Here they're, they're lost to captivity. In Matthew 2, they're lost to death. Uh, and the Lord is going to say, verse 16, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. That's the core of this thing. There is a future of hope. No matter how miserable you may be right now, no matter what you've gone through in terms of suffering and heartache and difficulty right now, there is hope in the future. And hope in the Bible is a certain expectation. And so God goes on in the next few verses to uh, describe this. And then starting in verse 23, there's a description of the future prosperity and restoration of the nation as the Lord brings them home, reestablishes uh, justice and righteousness in Israel. And God says in verse 25, For I have satiated, I have satisfied the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. God is the one who is sufficient for us, that no matter what we've gone through, God says He's the one who is going to completely uh, satisfy us and heal us from all of the damage that comes in our lives from sin. And then in verse 27, Behold, the days are coming. There's that phrase. The days are coming. That focus on the future. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. That means that there's going to be a time of prosperity. The house of Israel refers to the northern kingdom. House of Judah refers to the southern kingdom. And by using the two terms together, he's talking about the reunification of the nation because it split in approximately 930 B.C. when there was a tax revolt led by uh, Rehoboam, or Jeroboam rather, in the north, 
Rehoboam wanted to follow the counsel of his uh, uh, of his young men advisors, his own cronies, as opposed to the advisors of his father Solomon. So he increased taxation. There's a tax revolt. All this was discipline on Israel because of Solomon's uh, apostasy uh, later on in life. Now we'll, we haven't gotten there yet in our study of First Kings, but we will. So here there's a promise, days are coming that I will sow the house of Israel, the house of Judah, pulling them back together, reunification of the nation. That did not happen at any time previously. With the seed of man, the seed of beasts, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy. See, that's the discipline. God disciplines in love so that he can... uh, re reward them later because they have turned back to him. He says, I have watched over them to pluck up, to break break down, to throw down, to destroy, to afflict. So I will watch over them to build and to plant. Judgment always has a positive end. Discipline always has a positive end. And that is restoration. In those days they shall say no more. In other words, now we say that the fathers have eaten sour grapes, the bitterness on the part of the older generation, the children's teeth are set on edge, uh, anger on the part of young people. But in those days, you can't say that anymore because there will be happiness and joy and peace in the land. But everyone uh, shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. In other words, uh, there's not going to be a visitation of past generation sin on future generations. Those who uh, disobeyed will be disciplined. They'll die for their own iniquity. They'll be disciplined for their own iniquity. And then God says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, what we've seen in other passages, such as Isaiah 61, 8 and 9, is that um, this covenant is referred to in other places but there it is usually referred to as an everlasting uh, covenant. Uh, that terminology is used in uh, a number of places. So let's just make some, begin to make some observations as we work our way through the passage. Uh, first of all, the new covenant is contrasted with the old or the Mosaic covenant. This is in verse 32. It's not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That is the, uh, was the Mosaic covenant. So uh, he's going to make a new covenant, but it's not like, it's not according to, there will be a difference between the new covenant and the covenant that was made at Sinai, the covenant that uh, their fathers broke. So this is the point that's going to be picked up in Hebrews, is that the terminology New Covenant means that the Old Covenant is no longer in effect because we have a New Covenant demands a new priesthood. New priesthood indicates a new uh, administration. Second thing that we note is that it is a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The use of those terms together again emphasizes the unity of the nation as opposed to, at this time, their their division. The the northern kingdom of Israel had gone out under divine discipline in 722, and the southern kingdom is about to go out under divine discipline, but this will be a new covenant with a unified nation. The third thing we note is that this covenant is a future covenant. I will make this. It's a future tense. indicates that this is something that will be done in the future. So these are the uh, first things that we have seen. The first uh, three things we've seen is that it is not the Mosaic Covenant. It's distinct from that. It is a, it's made with the entire nation, the house of Judah, the house of Israel, and it is a uh, future covenant. Now the fourth thing that we see is that it has a spiritual dimension. The Davidic covenant focused on the seed, the descendant through David that would be the Messiah, the promised Messiah. The second covenant was the land covenant, Deuteronomy 29 and 30. And the land covenant promises that they will 
live in the full extent of the land that God had promised to Abraham. And the third covenant, the new covenant, is focused on what has to happen spiritually in order for them to live in that land. It's not that those covenants were not conditional. It's that Israel couldn't live up to the condition, so they never fully realized they were permanent covenants, permanent promises, but Israel couldn't live in the land as an apostate people. God wasn't going to let an apostate people live in the land that he gave them. So there were conditions, if they were going to enjoy the land, enjoy the blessings of the land, then they had to be an obedient people. But as we'll see in our study, the law mandates the requirement, the righteousness that God expected, but there's no internal change that allows them to to be obedient and live in the land. That's what the new covenant is going, going to supply because man just can't generate it unless God does the whole thing. And that's part of what's learned in, uh, in the millennial kingdom under the, under the new covenant. So verse 33, we learn our, our fourth thing focuses on the giving of this new, <clears throat> new heart, this new spiritual dimension. Uh, we read, but this is the covenant, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The after those days or after that period of, uh, of d- discipline, after that period of destruction, after that period of suffering. The fact that it is, he just mentions the house of Israel here. Remember, he's already mentioned house of Judah, house of Israel twice before. Uh, he, this time when he says the house of Israel, it envisions the whole nation. He's not excluding Judah. It is, it's just, uh, for the sake of brevity, just focusing on all of them under the terminology of house of Israel. I will put my law in their minds. All of them. Now, law here is not the Mosaic law, it's Torah. Torah, the basic meaning of Torah is instruction. The basic meaning of Torah is instruction. So you have various forms of Torah in the Old Testament. Uh, the Mosaic law is called Torah, and that is what the primary reference to Torah in the Old Testament is to the instruction in the Mosaic law. But that's not the only instruction, the only Torah in the Old Testament. So here when we read that I will put my law in their minds, don't read Mosaic law into that. It is a Torah, it's instruction. God is going to, as we'll see in other passages, going to put his word into their hearts. He's going to write it on, on the hearts of every Jew. They're going to be given new hearts. This is a, a, a concept that's completely foreign to us. You didn't have anything like that under the Mosaic law, which is the point that, that uh, is contrasted in Deuteronomy chapter 30. You don't have anything like that in the church age. We can't say that God is putting his law in our minds, not in the way that it's described here. Because the way it's described here is that there is this direct impartation of complete knowledge of God's law for each believer. So that, as we read in verse 34, no more shall every man teach his neighbor. There won't be pastors or teachers in Israel in the millennial kingdom because everyone will have the law written on his heart. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. And here, as in contrast to a number of passages in the Old Testament, knowing the Lord is equivalent to being saved. And it seems that way from a number of passages, a number of places where it's used in the Old Testament. So our fourth point is that the New Covenant includes giving every Jew a, a new heart. I will put their law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. These four stanzas, I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts, are complementary. They're, they're parallel. I will put my law in their minds is the same thing as writing it on their hearts. There we see that that heart is predominantly focusing on the uh, thinking aspect of the soul in the Old Testament. Sometimes it has volitional aspects, sometimes it has emotional aspects, but predominantly it has a reference to the thinking part of the soul. 
I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Universally. We don't see anything like that today. We can't even imagine what this is like. And that gets us into some corollary passages that uh, we don't have time to get into this evening. We'll start there next time. What does this mean to give, give every Jew a new heart? What's the relationship of this to having a circumcised heart? Deuteronomy 30. What's the significance of this for regeneration? How do we understand this? We'll come back, begin to answer those questions next time. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word this evening, to work our way through this passage, to remind it, be reminded again that you control history and that no matter what may happen in the past in terms of Israel being taken out in divine discipline or what may happen even in the present as we face a deterioration and corruption of our freedoms because of the uh, degraded uh, nature of politics today. We pray that we might realize that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not based on uh, this nation, its past. It's not based on our pride of citizenry here. Our hope, our happiness, our stability is based on our relationship with you. And that gives us the ability to live above the circumstances live above the trends of history, whether they are good or whether they are bad, that we may be a testimony to everyone around us of your grace and your goodness and the future that we have with you. We pray that we might keep our focus on these eternal truths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.